Proud of you guys, Zach and John, Joey, proud of y'all. Fits perfect with uh, where we're going today. Um, You'll notice that I included um, two translations, one the elect standard version, our ESV, and uh, and the message, which is a translation by uh, a PCUSA pastor, um, Eugene Peterson. Um, his is a far more modern, far more, um, it, it, it sounds uh, different to our ear. Um, I put it in there for a reason, um, not because I necessarily prefer it, but because it, it'll help a little bit um, um, early on. So can I, can I pray for us real quick and then we'll read and get going? Uh, Father, we come before you because of the finished work of your Son who has poured out his blessing on his children, your children, in the power of the Spirit. And so we ask that your Spirit would be at work in the reading of your Word, in the preaching of your Word, and, and in the living of your Word. We come this morning like the disciples to Christ, and our prayer is, Lord, teach us to pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, we ask, amen. Paul says to Timothy, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, Godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus. Who gave himself as a ransom for all. Which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I love this. I'm I'm not kidding you guys. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, so we are, I am today, wrapping up a sermon series that we tend to do at the beginning of each year. Jeremy will take us back through our values as a church, the things that sort of wind us up and cause us to tick and move along our way. And for us at CPC, we see these biblical values, and so we take them as our own, handed to us by God and Christ, as it were, as, can you name them? Anybody can name them? You get 10 heaven points if you can say, worship, teaching, nurture, reaching, okay? Me and Jeremy, the only ones that get the heaven points today. Worship, teaching, nurture, reaching. And we've spent two or three weeks on each of these. Today, I'm going to walk us out, out into the world as we pray, as we reach up in order to reach out. Um, So right out of the gates, why do we have to pray? I'll tell you why. I'll write this down if you're you're taking notes. If you're not, just etch it in your brain. Um, Write this down, 200 colon 1. Just you're writing a ratio, 200 dash or colon one. Best I can tell from the stat books, and I went over them for 
an hour or two this week, our PCA statistical reports that come out every summer at General Assembly. We get these two big books, and you can go through the stats of all the churches and all the presbyteries and all of them gathered together. And a lot of churches, even though we love to pat ourselves on the back and say, we are Presbyterians, we do things decently and in order, at least half of our churches don't turn this stuff in. And some of them turn them in from two or three years past. So the best I can tell, 200 to 1. It takes 200 PCA members for a single adult convert. Well, we have to pray because we have to be better than that. I know we're not all evangelists. I know how nerve-wracking it can be to talk about faith, especially in a cultural climate like ours where offense seems so easily gathered to oneself. I know it's easier to just hope that they Google CPC and find us one morning when they roll out of bed. I know all of that. But I know the task that was handed to us by Jesus At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus announces the Great Commission, which for the PCA we've translated as the Great Omission. The promise that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth accompanies then the task that he gives his disciples to go and make disciples as they go through life. And then in Matthew 9... We read that Jesus looks out on the crowds and Matthew records that he has compassion on the multitudes because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And in response to this compassion on God's heart, Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So why do we need to pray? We have to pray for this simple reason. Our calling as Christ followers in the world is to be Christ announcers to the world. That's why we have to pray. And I bet, like me, you know how helpless and ineffective it feels to see this challenge clearly because the truth is you can't change anyone's heart. I live with my kids and I can't change their hearts. I live with my wife. We sleep in the same bed. I can't control her heart. Not even with our best efforts, with our most dazzling explanations, can we change anyone's heart. But God can. And he calls each of us to call upon him. And I love the way Peterson translates Paul's supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. Peterson says in the message, first thing I want you to do is pray. Pray every way for everyone. And that needs to be the heart of every church that's in Christ, even Christ Presbyterian. For every body, we need to pray. And Paul lists these four different types of prayer. And I want to tell you that there are all sorts of prayers you can and should pray regularly for your own spiritual growth and health, for the desires of our sick brothers and sisters and family members and friends, for sorrow in the world, like the sad situation in Florida and in Texas a few months before that and in Vegas a few months before that. Maybe we should pray about that situation a little more than we have been. 
But I challenge you, especially this year, to pray for the unconverted. Tulsa is filled with wounded people who left the church because they were told, you don't have enough faith. You don't believe hard enough or true enough, and so things don't go for you that way. And you know what? When they left, there was no looking back. Are we going to pray for them? Are we going to reach out and love them through their pain and suffering back into the fold? I want you to pray for these wounded and detached. Pray for the people in your life who personally need the grace of God in the face of Jesus. And so here is where these cards come into play, which Scott tried to throw his out so he didn't have to do it. Now, mine is cut very badly, very awkwardly. Ethan, you have some confessing to do. Look, the long and short of it is, there's a bunch of different ways to do this. This is how I chose to do it. Think through the people God has placed in your regular path and as he draws them to mind, write their name down as a sort of commitment to pray for them. And then take this card, put it somewhere where you see it regularly and then do it. Do it. I dare you to pray for folks to fall in love with Jesus because I promise you he'll answer that prayer. He has for centuries now. I don't think he plans to stop anytime soon, but I dare you to do it. I dare you to take it out and pray for folks and then love on them and see if God might do something in our midst this year. And as a point of clarification, I have to say something here. I, along with many others in these pews, have come into the PCA from another denomination one that held the only standard of a church's health was how many conversions you could get in a year. How many baptisms you got this year, Brother Bobo? And I've been guilted and I've been manipulated with stuff like this, coupled with some sort of canned presentation speech, sales pitch. I am fully aware and mildly embarrassed that this can feel like that. I don't want you to feel guilted. We don't want you to feel guilted, really. I get it. It's, this is borderline cheesy, and if I hate anything, it's metaphysical cheesiness. I love actual cheesiness, but metaphysical cheesiness bothers me to no end, and I just can't think of a better way to tangibly get you to do what Jesus has commanded you to do. So I'll be awkward and cheesy for you to be faithful with him. We want you to pray, and not just generally, but specifically for the people in your life that are not in union with Christ for any reason. So most new members to the PCA, to a church like CPC, are like me, like Jeremy, like Ethan, like so many of you. We come because we were Baptists once. We were far off. And in Calvin, we've been brought near. We think, oh, Reformation, that's what it means. This is a second blessing poured out on us. And it's good. Look, I'm happy to be in the PCA. I'm here by commitment, not because it's easy. You people are really difficult. You know who, you're, you, know who you are without me pointing, looking at you, Ed. Um, this is how our churches grow across the denomination. People in other places start to read things, historical things, and then read the Bible in a new way, and before long they, they find a new home here, and that's good. 
The other thing that grows our churches is you people are breeders. Dutch evangelism. We grow the church organically, um, which is great as well. It's good to have babies. It's good to have a, a church where kids cry out in the sanctuary. I love that. I love in Sunday school that the couple of ladies bring their kids and they make a mess of things. I most people aren't listening anyway, so kids are at least cute. It's great. It's great that people come here from other places, and it's great that we have babies. But we have been explicitly sent out by Christ to make disciples. And so get that image planted in your heart. Think of this. What would it be like for CPC? What would it be like for Tulsa if over the next two years, each of us introduced a friend to Jesus for the first time? What would that mean for this sanctuary? What would that mean for this church? What would that mean for this part of Tulsa, that people were faithfully following Jesus, that we were building relationships and patiently teaching someone how they have to live in Christ? What would that mean for us? What would change in our church and in our city with a few hundred new men and women relying on God and following him? What would that mean for our ministries here? What would it mean for our worship? It would mean a mess of things. It would mean a lot of difficult decisions had to be made about who's going to sit where. Is Betty Jo going to get mad when a new couple takes her seat? What's going to happen when we have to change a worship style or sing a different song? What, what does it mean if we have to do something different to fit those folks here? Doesn't that sound fun? Doesn't that sound like a stack of fun problems? Think back then to the world in which Paul wrote to these churches that Timothy was over. Huge empire shaping world politics Raging heathens up in the hinterlands of Germania and Gaul, waging guerrilla war with maybe, in the whole of human population, maybe a few thousand Christians, ten maybe. If that was your world and you knew your mission to go and make disciples, that your job was to overturn every society and heart with this news of a murdered and risen king, what would you do? You're in a minority Pretty much everyone hates you. What do you do? You'd pray. You'd pray for God to act and bless your efforts to make him known among the nations. And that's what I want us to do this year. Let's pray that God would be at work in our little world through our feeble hands and our stumbling words. That we might have new brothers and sisters in the Savior. Paul says, pray especially for every ruler to do their job well. So that Christians can live a certain way and so prove this gospel of new life. I don't think when I look at the vast majority of Christians that the world sees, I don't think that they would say, yeah, Christians are those people that live peacefully, that have quiet lives that are godly and dignified. I think we've made a mess of that. When we pray, when we pray for our leaders, it's so that we might reflect Christ who lived a peaceful and quiet and godly and dignified life. This is what we're praying for. 
This, he says, pleases God, the prayer of Christ in Matthew 5. Love your enemies. Pray for those that persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Hey, Jesus, that's nice. Do you know how hard that is, God? You want me to pray for the people that are marginalizing me and taking away my rights. You actually expect me to pray for the people that hate, despise, make fun of me? Yeah, I do. Because I will. So even for these rough and vile Roman soldiers, Jesus does that. The sort of prayer pleases the Father because it shows us to be his true children. We have to pray these prayers for our friends, our family, and even our enemies because we were once enemies of God too. Don't forget that. And through all his pain and agony on the cross, the naked heart of God was displayed when Jesus prays for his enemies and those that persecute him when he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus isn't asking you to do anything that he hasn't done before you, that he's doing even now. And his father in heaven, about to lose his only begotten son, smiles over that prayer. So that in the Acts, just a little bit later, months after this crucifixion, thousands flock to Christ. Thousands are coming to him in faith. Because Jesus prayed and the father answered. Finally, we have to pray like this because it works. It actually works. It works to change them, and it works to change us. I think that's Paul's point in including the theological picture of Christ as mediator and ransom. We believe that what we do matters. We're not Christian fatalists. If you're reformed and you believe in sovereignty and predestination, that doesn't get you off the hook from doing stuff. You can be reformed and active, and you can be reformed and passive and be wrong. We shun the doctrine that God acts arbitrarily and that human action is meaningless. When I was in college, a group of us uh, started a, a dorky uh, club. We went to a, a small Baptist college. My wife Tiffany and I did. We met there, and we started this group. We were all sort of stumbling in the dark towards Reformed theology, and there was one Calvinist on the campus. He was, he was like a, a Pegasus. We were try to capture him and do tests on him. And we started this club called the Dead Theologian Society. And we would meet. And the only rule was you had to bring your Bible and a cigar. And for hours we would argue with each other. And none of us knew anything. So the arguments were great. And this, this Calvinist came. And he actually believed that. He told us in one of these studies that prayer was pointless because God had already planned everything, so nothing we did mattered. And I remember thinking, you are smarter than me, but that can't be right. My friend was more reformed than Calvin, by the way. He was more reformed than Jesus. He was actually a heretic, and we should have stoned him. But he got out. When we earnestly pray for difficult people in hopeless situations, you know who you sound like? Jesus. 
and Paul and Peter and the rest of the suffering faithful through the ages. And God answers those prayers. He turns hearts. He turns enemies into friends. He turns the fearful and hard-hearted followers into faithful witnesses. The famous Anglican John Stott once wrote, It's impossible to be truly converted to God without being thereby converted to our neighbor. We have to pray for our hearts to turn towards them and for theirs to turn towards God. And the good news is, whether you believe this spiritual stuff I'm telling you that I think Paul says that Jesus means, there's scientific data from people who don't believe in your God or Christ that proves this. Dr. Andrew Newberg of the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. Sounds impressive, doesn't it, doctors? We have quite a few doctors here. Penn's a good medical school, right? It's not like TU. I'm joking. I joke, I joke, I kid. There's not a medical school here. Calm down. Have hard scientific data to prove that when a, a human contemplates God, the brain changes and improves our physical and emotional health. When we pray, as we pray, God acts in them, but he also acts in us, and it changes the way we view the world. This sort of prayer, this is from their work, leads to increased peacefulness, social awareness, and greater compassion. This is, this is the scientific data from people who don't trust our God saying, yeah, yeah, it's really good for a human to pray. It's good for you when you pray. And it does, it works in us physiologically. I don't know if I'm using that word correctly, but I'm going to go with it. It works physiologically in us to produce the things that Paul says Christians should look like. That we would lead peaceful and quiet and contemplative, and godly, and dignified. That happens to you when you pray. And God receives those prayers in Christ and works it in another. This is true. We have to pray because we need it as much as anybody. Because it's impossible for you to look at your neighbor, to look at your enemy, and plead before the throne of God above for this person to come and see the beauty and wonder of Christ, and to put their faith and trust in Him. It's impossible to pray that prayer and then go live like a jerk to that person. It should be. Pray and act how we ought to pray, which brings us to the how of our prayers. First, we must pray offensively, generously for those in our lives. It was always Jesus' teaching about the lengths and the depths of grace that got Him in trouble with the religious leaders. Grace is for the furthest off, for the disgusting leper, for the hopeless prostitute. There was grace for the foreigner that Jesus pushed. There's grace for an embezzling thug named Zacchaeus. Ultimately, they killed Jesus for his expansive view of grace. And so when Paul says here, that God wants us to live begging grace even on behalf of those who rule us out of selfish ambition or who ignore us or deceive us. The expectation is that we should be praying like Jesus, offensively, generously. Bless those who persecute you. And Paul's choice of wording is offensively generous because he says, God desires that all people be saved. 
That little throwaway line that I'm sure Paul didn't think anything about has created theological indigestion in the Reformed world for centuries now. Hold up, Paul. Didn't you just tell us in Romans that he has mercy on whomever he wills and hardens whomever he wills? That's from your mouth, Paul. You told us that. God selects and chooses and does all these things. He brings them in, and now you're telling me he wants them all in. Paul, figure it out. How can it be both and some? And it's simple. The answer is so simple, but you know what? As Reformed people, you know what the toxic byproduct is of our perfect theology? Man, we love to fight. Some of us are really good at it too. But I'm going to give you the answer. It's super duper simple. How can it be both and some? Both all and some? Here it is. You ready? God is in charge and you have to pray. Is that good enough? I think that's what Paul says, that God's in charge. He's going to do everything that he has set forth in his plan before creation. And you have to pray. Now, if you want more than that, take it up with Jesus when you get to heaven. Because between now and then, that's all I can tell you. God's in charge. You have to pray. And then live like you've been in prayer we muddy the water so much. Look, do you think Jesus knew everything that was coming before him as he was getting ready to enter Jerusalem? Yeah, he knew what, he knew what he was doing. He had told him again and again, the Son of Man goes to die. He'll be dead three days and he'll rise again. Did he know? Yeah. Did he know that all his friends would betray him? That his closest friend would lie and curse to get out from sharing in his judgment? Yeah, he knew that. He tells Peter, before the cock crows three times, you'll deny me, Peter. Before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. Did he also know that in his dying and in his rising, he would save all those that were his? You bet. There's no doubt. But here's what he does. The Son of God who knows the mind of God. In Luke 19, it says, when he drew near and saw the city... He wept over Jerusalem and he prayed and said, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Did Jesus know all that was going to happen? Yeah. Did he stop and weep and pray for the city that wouldn't receive him? Yeah. How can you do any less? How can I do any less? We pray like Jesus when we pray like this. Can you weep in prayer for those that despise you, for those who do not know your Savior and may not ever? Scottish hymn writer Henry Light wrote this beautiful hymn. Here's how it goes. I'm not going to sing it, Dana. Did Christ... That's enough. (laughs) Did Christ over sinners weep? And shall our cheeks be dry? Let floods of penitential grief burst forth from every eye. Behold the Son of God in tears, the angels wondering see. Hast thou no wonder, O my soul? He shed those tears for thee. How can we, who have God's Spirit that pled through tears for an entire city, not pray through the same wet eyes? The only answer that I can think of 
for myself, and I'm assuming for many of you, is pride. We're cold because we're prideful. This is a traditional prayer from the time of Christ recorded in the Jewish Talmud. And brothers and sisters, I'm afraid there are days when I could pray this and not blush. I'm afraid there are too many Christians in and around us that could pray this and mean it. I thank thee, O Lord my God, that thou hast given me my lot with those who sit in the seat of learning and not with those who sit at the street corners. For I'm early to work on the words of Torah and they're early to work on things of no moment. I weary myself and profit thereby where they weary themselves to no profit. I run towards the life of the age to come and they run towards the pit of destruction. Amen. Jesus would never pray like that. Jesus' heart broke, and ours should too. Lastly, on that point, the prayer that honors God's grace and sounds like the prayers of Christ is a humble prayer. The great theologian and professor Harvey Kahn wrote, the God of the kingdom is the God of the despairing, the brokenhearted, the hopeless. Humility begins here. Don't forget that you are the despairing. You are the brokenhearted and the hopeless. Far too many evangelistic Christians pray and share their faith out of a place of pride, which is offensive to the world. There's, we've given the world reason to ignore us, brothers and sisters, because it's a gross mixed characterization that the life of Paul describes in 1 Timothy, that the life that Jesus displays in his ministry Think back to Jesus pleading with his father before his arrest. This is Jesus, the son of God, can name and claim whatever he wants. Even Jesus kneels and says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Not my will, though. Yours be done. And think of Jesus before the councils. Think of Jesus before Pilate, confident, calm, and humble. This is the way we need to pray and live. Confident, calm, and humble, and desperate. Praying these desperate prayers theologically protects us from two things. First, we can pray and we can act without guilt. We don't have to connive and convince. We don't have to strategize and get people to sign on a line. We just have to pray earnestly and live carefully. And two, we don't have to be pushy or annoying or frustrating because ultimately, it's all up to God to act. We have to be faithful and joyful in our task, but God's gotta be God for that to matter. We have to pray because the task is impossible and we are so weak. And we have to pray generously like Jesus with tender hearts through wet eyes, humbly resting on God's promise to build his church. And after we pray and live and do, after we say our amens, our call is to make Jesus make sense to those whom we've been praying for. Once in a while, in a post-Christian context like ours, we see these stark conversions where someone goes in a moment from unbelief or false belief to faith in Christ immediately. 
But more often than not now in Europe and in the West where we are, faith grows by degrees through a series of many decisions, M-I-N-I, little decisions. Rosaria Butterfield's a famous author now, and she's a prime example. She was a professor at a progressive university in a happy relationship with her lover and convinced that Christians were angry, bigoted, knuckle-dragging, mouth-breathers. She became friends with a pastor in town and thought, I'm going to see what makes this guy tick. So she started going to dinners at his house, these long extended dinners, and talking with this pastor and his wife. And through these long seasons of intimate friendship, she found out that Jesus is not just believable, but beautiful. What Paul says here at the end of verse 7, faith and truth. Beautiful and believable. And after we've prayed in bold humility about our impossible task, once we've talked to God about people, we have to talk to people about God. I've been a pastor for coming up on 20 years, believe it or not. And I'll tell you this about me. You could put me in solitary confinement for a week and I'd still come out making three new friends. I can make small talk with almost anybody about almost anything. In fact, when the staff goes out for lunch, I'm regularly dared by these jokers to see just how far my line extends. We haven't found it yet. The last time we went to Torchy's, Ethan said, I dare you to ask those ladies to let you try their queso. That's easy. I love queso. So I'm a super extrovert, and I had my gene of embarrassment removed as a child. But the point is this. I'm an extrovert. I'm a trained pastor. I'm a man. I'm 40. There's all these things that I don't mind doing. But even me, when it comes time to sit and talk with someone I've been friends with for a while and talk with them about things of faith, man, butterflies it's a nerve-wracking thing it's you know what you're doing you're you're going to your safe and you're getting out your most prized treasure the thing that you love most the thing that has defined you and you're going to unfold it in front of someone and say I think this is beautiful do you do you think this is beautiful and the odds are they're going to say that's ridiculous and that's feels weird for us. I expect you feel that way too, but all I can tell you is this. We are expected to pray for others, and we are supposed to clearly and carefully and compellingly talk to others about Jesus. And we have to do both. We have to pray and we have to live and act and talk. And here's the truth of it. God will work through us, even through you, to to grow his church and bless the world. Over the last two weeks, Jeremy preached the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's no stretch to imagine the priest and Levite walking by this wounded man. I don't have time. I'm late for a meeting. I'm going to offer up a little prayer, okay? I'm going to pray for you, brother. Would that prayer have been enough to prove Jesus' point of who is my neighbor? 
No, I prayed for him. Is that enough, Jesus? We must pray with the same fervor. We must bind up battered souls and take them to find rest and healing in Jesus. Yes, we have to pray. Yes, we have to live. We have to be like those friends tearing off the roof to get the hurt one we love to the Savior. We do that in prayer and we do it by ripping up shingles. And that's the task of every Christian. It's the task of every congregation. We can't lose focus of our great comfort or the challenge ahead. Uh, Jesus doesn't start the Great Commission with go. He starts the Great Commission with all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. I'm in charge of it all. Therefore, go. Make disciples. There's a comfort and a challenge, and don't leave either of them behind. But if we don't pray and live for those who aren't here yet, we will die the prolonged death of petty arguments over music style, carpet color, wall paint, sermon length, neckties. God, churches split over the stupidest stuff because they forget to pray and live like souls and bodies matter to God. Christ gave himself in humility for the desperate and in his rising and ascension, he turned and gave his bride to the world in the same way for the same cause. Christ, the son of God who lived in perfect communion with his father, he prayed fervently and then lived according to those prayers as his people, reformed or not, we can do no less. And so if you're here this morning, assured of your standing in Christ, by grace through faith, remember this. Jesus, knowing he would save you and that no one could snatch you out of his hand, he prayed for you in John 17. And as if that weren't enough, he lives to always intercede on your behalf. Jesus is right now before the Father representing you. Oh, I hope you'll seek his face and favor this week for the names you write on your card. I will go further even. If you believe the gospel that Jesus died for and is remolding the world to display his kingdom, then you're expected to pray and you're expected to ask as one who relies on Christ. Secondly, he's also right now waiting to lead the heavenly hosts in a parade down golden streets for the one who might be here, who's ready to yield your life to God's pursuit and fall on Jesus for rest and perfection. If you've come this morning as a doubter or skeptic, we welcome you because God welcomes you. And we would have you know this, even though we haven't known your name, we've been praying for you for years. And so if you come today to come to Christ, it'll be the answer to our prayers. We want to spend our lives together with you, talking about and living like the mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. He died because of and for your sin. He gave himself away to call you his child. And we plan to give ourselves a way to call you our brother and sister. 
And if that does anything to your soul, if there's any stirring, if there's any question in your mind of what it means for you to walk in faith with Christ, please, you have to find one of us and let us know. Nothing would make this day better than to welcome you into our family. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I'll never cast out. It's for that simple and beautiful truth that Christians are appointed and sent out. And like Paul, I'll tell you this. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. This is who we are. It's what we do. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me? Teach us to pray. Jesus, teach your people to pray by your Spirit in its in his power, in his strength, with his humility and grace. Give us persistence like the widow who comes to the judge. We ask for justice. We ask for those that are your enemies to be called your children. So many of us are praying for our family members that we love so much who don't love you. Many of us are praying for our children, grandchildren. Jesus, we're going to bang on the door of heaven. And we're going to ask that in the generous kindness that you've met us with, that you would come and meet others. We look forward in hopeful anticipation of how you'll move and work and act among Christ Presbyterian this year and next uh, among our city. There's so much ruin and wreckage here. And we long for healthy brothers and sisters who love and live after you, who follow you into dark and difficult places. Would you bless our efforts to see the kingdom come to bear in our lives? Amen. Or would you stand?